As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the podcast with me, Justin Briley, once more bringing you some bonus material before we pick up a new season of the show with Alistair in 2022. Over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing the audio from a very special event that I had the privilege of attending back in November 2013 at Westminster Abbey in London. A special service took place there to mark the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death, with a memorial stone unveiled for him in Poet's Corner, an honour reserved for only a handful of British writers. Well, the day before that celebration, a symposium was hosted by Westminster Abbey, featuring a variety of world-class thinkers and scholars reflecting on Lewis's contribution to Christian faith and reason. And in this first lecture from the symposium, Alastair McGrath speaks on telling the truth through rational argument. He explores the role that rational philosophical argumentation played throughout Lewis's life, both prior to and after his conversion to Christianity. And the lectures followed by questions from the audience. The symposium was originally hosted by the Westminster Abbey Institute with recording by the Christian Evidence Society with whose permission we're broadcasting this audio. You can find the video of this lecture with the show notes of today's programme. And for all things C.S. Lewis, you can of course visit our show page at cslewispodcast.com. So here's the Reverend Andrew Tremlett introducing the symposium. It is a very great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Alistair McGrath, um, someone who I've known for, uh, well, over a quarter century, as it happens to be. Uh, Alistair began life as a research scientist before turning to and combining with theology, ordained into the Church of England and has had a distinguished career in academic theology and education. Amongst other things, he's been principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford and in 1999 was awarded a personal chair in theology by Oxford University as professor of historical theology. Alastair was a founding member of the International Society for Science and Religion. He's currently professor of theology, ministry and education in the Department of Education and Professional Studies at King's College London. And I know some of his students are here this afternoon. And next year we'll be returning to Oxford to take up a professorship in theology and science. Alistair has spoken and lectured widely in the UK and much further afield and has published greatly on C.S. Lewis, Uh, and on other topics, the twilight of atheism, the Dawkins delusion, Dawkins God, the meaning of life, and the scientific theology. More germane, he has written that excellent uh, biography of Lewis himself. So please will you join me in welcoming Professor Alastair McGrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a very great pleasure to be able to contribute to Westminster Abbey's series of public lectures on telling the truth by exploring how C.S. Lewis used rational argument to commend and to communicate the Christian faith. And Lewis is now firmly established as one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century with a continuing legacy of influence in the 21st. 
And it seems to me that few apologists have achieved anything approaching his impact, which transcends denominational barriers. Lewis was British and a layman of the Church of England. And the decision to honour him here at Westminster is an important reaffirmation of his cultural and religious identity, here at the heart of Britain's religious and political establishment. Lewis's genius is such that he is loved and valued far beyond the confines of Great Britain and the Church of England. Yet, as the recent anniversary events here in Britain have made abundantly clear, attendances have been huge. Lewis is both remembered and admired here in Great Britain and especially in the Church of England. But there's more to Lewis's reach than this. Lewis appeals to both what I might describe as fans and to academics. If I might borrow a phrase from John Chrysostom, an early 5th century Archbishop of Constantinople, his works are such that children can paddle in them and elephants can swim in them. The point that Chrysostom was making was that the Bible, or more accurately, John's Gospel, could be read and appreciated at multiple levels, both popular and academic. And that, I think, is certainly true of Lewis. Lewis is read and loved by a wide readership. Yet this anniversary year has marked an important transition in that Lewis is now being taken with increased seriousness by academics, especially at Oxford and at Cambridge. Many of you, I think, will have read Rowan Williams's brilliant engagement with Narnia. And surely it's significant that one of the world's greatest theologians and a former Archbishop of Canterbury, who is now master of Lewis's old Cambridge College, should take such delight in Narnia and help us to find such new depths of meaning within it. Now it seems to me that this recognition is long overdue. The foundations for this recognition, I think, were laid back in 1946, when the ancient Scottish University of St. Andrews awarded Lewis the honorary degree of Doctorate of Divinity. And Professor Donald Daly, Bailey, Dean of the University's Faculty of Divinity, declared that Lewis had, and I quote, succeeded in capturing the attention of many who will not readily listen to profound professional theologians. And that he had, again I quote, arranged a new kind of marriage between theological reflection and poetic imagination. And the passing of time, I think, has confirmed that Bailey was right on both counts. Perhaps to use a musical image, Lewis is better seen as an arranger rather than a composer. But the fact is that some of his theological arrangements and variations and themes seem to have captured the popular imagination where the originals did not. So what is Lewis's approach to telling the truth? And why has it been so successful and influential? In this lecture, I'm going to explore Lewis's distinctive understanding of the rationality of faith, which emphasizes the reasonableness of Christianity without imprisoning it within an impersonal and austere rationalism. Lewis himself was an atheist as a younger man, convinced of the fundamental irrationality of Christian faith and its incapacity to accommodate the brutality and senselessness of the Great War, in which he himself fought from 1917 to 1918. Yet Lewis's early decision to limit himself to a rationalist worldview proved to be imaginatively sterile and uninteresting, leaving him existentially dissatisfied. It became, I think, clear to Lewis that pure reason offered him a bleak intellectual landscape that he could not bear to inhabit. 
Yet this, his reason insisted, was all that there was. To believe otherwise was pure fantasy. But Lewis's imagination taught them that there had to be more. And I quote now some very well-known words from Surprised by Joy. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Now, Lewis's study of English literature at Oxford, especially the poetry of George Herbert, left him with gnawing doubts about his atheism. Herbert and others seemed able to connect up with a world that Lewis was tempted to dismiss as illusory, yet which nevertheless haunted his imagination. Again, I quote from Surprised by Joy. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Might, Lewis wondered, the deepest intuitions of the imagination challenge the shallow truths of his dogmatic reason, and perhaps even triumph over it. So how did Lewis break free from this rationalist prison? Lewis's understanding of the reasonableness of the Christian faith rests on a distinct way of grasping the rationality of the created order and its ultimate grounding in God. Where some favor deductive arguments for the existence of God, Lewis offers his own approach, which is more inductive than deductive, more visual than purely rational. Lewis's approach is difficult to simplify as it is highly nuanced, but perhaps we could set out the key aspects of his approach along the following lines. The truths of the Christian faith lie beyond the reach of human reason, yet when these truths are presented and grasped, their rationality can easily be discerned. And one hallmark of that rationality is the ability of the Christian faith to make things intelligible. Now it's clear that Lewis was drawn to Christianity because of both its intellectual capaciousness and its imaginative appeal. It made sense of things without limiting itself to what could be understood or grasped by reason. And Lewis, it seems to me, echoes a theme that we find in the final canto of Dante's Divine Comedy. When the great Florentine poet and theologian, who Lewis, of course, knew and loved, expressed the idea that Christianity provides a vision of things, something wonderful which can be seen, yet which proves resistant to verbal expression. So listen to these two lines from Dante. From that moment onwards, my power of sight exceeded that of speech, which fails at such a vision. For Lewis, there's always something of a sense of a beyond, a numinous, something of enormous significance that lies beyond our reason, hinted at more by intuition than by logic. And this point, I think, had been made earlier by G.K. Chesterton, who, of course, Lewis admired enormously. Lewis wrote, uh, Chesterton wrote these words, Every true artist feels that he is touching transcendental truths, that his images are shadows of things seen through the veil. Now, while the intellectual capaciousness of the Christian faith can indeed be rationally analyzed, Lewis hints that it is best imaginatively communicated. So Lewis invites us to see Christianity as offering us a standpoint, a viewpoint, if you like, a platonic synopticon, from which we can survey things and grasp their intrinsic interconnectedness. We see how things connect together. 
And Lewis consistently uses a remarkably wide range of visual metaphors, such as the sun, light, blindness, and shadows, to help us to understand the nature of a true understanding of things. Where some argue that rationality concerns the ability of reason to give an account of things, Lewis frames this more in terms of our ability to see their relationships. And this, I think, has two very significant consequences for what Lewis presents. First, it means that Lewis sees reason and imagination as existing in a collaborative relationship. Reason without imagination is potentially dull and limited. Imagination without reason is potentially delusory and escapist. Lewis develops a notion of imagined, not imaginary, imagined reality, which is capable of being grasped by reason and visualized by the imagination. But secondly, it means that Lewis makes extensive use of verbal illustrations or analogies to enable us to see things in a new way. For example, Lewis's famous apologetic for the doctrine of the Trinity and mere Christianity suggests that our difficulties in understanding it arise primarily because we fail to see it properly. If we were to see it in another way, as, for example, the inhabitant of a two-dimensional world might try and grasp the structure of a three-dimensional reality, then we begin to grasp its intrinsic rationality. And Lewis's apologetic often takes the form of a visual, imagine, a visual invitation, or indeed even imperative, try seeing it this way. Now, perhaps this helps us appreciate the special appeal of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which present a way of seeing things embodied within stories which turns out to be rationally plausible and imaginatively attractive. Lewis's Oxford colleague, Austin Farrer, suggested that Lewis's apologetic approach might initially look like an argument, but on closer inspection, it turned out to be an encouragement to see things in a new way and thus grasp the rationality of faith. Lewis Farrer suggested makes us think, and I quote from Farrer at this point, we are listening to an argument when in reality we are presented with a vision and it is the vision that carries conviction. So Lewis, I think, is challenging us not simply to think of Christianity in terms of theories or ideas, but rather to grasp the greater vision of reality that it makes possible and try to inhabit this way of seeing things. For example, Consider Lewis's imaginative visualization of a theological truth, namely, the entrapment of the human soul through sin. We find Lewis illustrating this very powerfully in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lewis's opening line in this book is seen by many as one of its most memorable features. I quote, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. And as those of you who've read this book will know, Eustace Scrub is portrayed as a thoroughly sympathetic, odious character whom Lewis develops as an example of selfishness. It's difficult to like him to begin with, and it's just as difficult to feel sorry for him when he changes into a dragon as a result of what Lewis calls his greedy, dragonish thoughts. Let me tell you how this happens. The thoroughly obnoxious Eustace encounters some enchanted gold. He believes that this will make him the master of all things, but instead it masters him. 
Lewis, as you know, loved Old Norse mythology and borrowed the Norse story about the greedy giant Fafnir, who turned himself into a dragon to protect his ill-won gain. So Eustace becomes a dragon. Now, having become a dragon, how does Eustace stop being a dragon? And Lewis, in a vividly stimulating passage, presents Eustace's initial transformation into a dragon and then his subsequent undragoning as a double transformation that reveals both Eustace's selfish, fallen nature and the transforming power of divine grace. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis provides a brilliant description of Eustace realizing to his horror, not simply that he's become a dragon, but that he cannot break free from this entrapment. He frantically tries to scratch off his dragon's skin, yet each layer he removes merely reveals yet another layer of scales beneath. Eustace discovers he simply cannot break free from his prison. He is trapped. But salvation lies to hand. Aslan appears and tears away at the dragon flesh with his claws. And when the scales are finally removed, Aslan plunges the raw and bleeding Eustace into a well from which he emerges purified and renewed with his humanity restored. The storyline is dramatic, realistic, and shocking. But the power of the narrative brings home the Christian themes that Lewis believed could not be described as effectively through a series of well-intentioned theological lectures. And while Lewis draw, drew his dragon imagery from Norse mythology, the story of the undragoning draws on the rich ideas and imagery of the New Testament. So what are we to learn from this powerful and shocking story so realistically depicted? As the raw, challenging imagery of Aslan tearing at Eustace's flesh makes clear, Eustace has been trapped by forces over which he has no control. The one who would be master has instead been mastered. The dragon is a symbol not so much of sin itself as of the power of sin to entrap, to captivate, and to imprison. It can only be broken and mastered by the Redeemer. Aslan is the one who heals and renews Eustace, restoring him to what he was intended to be. The immersion of Eustace in the water of the well is immediately familiar, picking up on the New Testament's language about baptism as dying to self and rising to Christ. And I think the omission of this aspect of the undragoning of Eustace in the recent movie version of The Voyage of the Dawn Treaders was, uh, I think, a, a serious omission because it, it really weakened and diluted its imaginative appeal. So there is, I think, a major theme here. And you see the point I'm trying to make. Lewis takes a classical theological doctrine, but he transposes it into a narrative, a story. This narrative is to be embraced imaginatively and not simply understood rationally. Lewis breathes new life into a traditional doctrine by inviting us to see it. We are shown what sin is all about, not told about it. Now, although some have tried to force Lewis into a purely rationalist way of thinking, this doesn't really do him justice. Does, Lewis doesn't really try to prove the existence of God on a priori grounds. Instead, Lewis invites us to see how what we observe in the world around us and experience within us fits into the Christian way of seeing things. 
And Lewis often articulates this way of seeing things in terms of a myth. That is to say, in the technical sense of the word, a story about reality, which both invites its imaginative embrace and communicates a conceptual framework by which other things are to be seen. The imagination embraces the narrative of the myth, but reason consequently reflects on the contents of the myth. So how does this approach to the reasonableness of faith work out in practice? Let's consider Lewis's celebrated argument from desire, exploring both its rational structure and its imaginative appeal. The starting point for Lewis's approach is an experience, a longing for something undefined, possibly undefinable, that is as insatiable as it is elusive. And Lewis sets out versions of this argument at several points in his writings, including, incidentally, the Chronicles of Narnia. But the most important statements of this argument are the following. First of all, the 1933 statement in The Pilgrim's Regress, written very shortly after Lewis's discovery of Christianity, in which Lewis sets out an allegorical account of his own conversion, focusing on the theme of desire. Secondly, the university sermon, The Weight of Glory, preached in Oxford in June 1941 and subsequently published as an article in the journal Theology. And this, I think, is the most eloquent statement of the argument, framed primarily in terms of the human quest for beauty. Thirdly, there is the talk entitled Hope, given during the third series of broadcast talks for the British Broadcasting Corporation during the Second World War, and subsequently reproduced as a chapter in Mere Christianity. And this is generally considered to be Lewis's most influential statement of the argument. And finally, of course, we have the autobiographical work Surprised by Joy, in which this theme of joy plays a significant role in arousing Lewis's openness towards God. In Surprised by Joy, Lewis described his childhood experiences of immense longing, which he terms joy for something unknown and elusive, triggered off by such things as the fragrance of a flowering currant bush in the garden of his childhood home in Belfast, or reading Henry Wandsworth Longfellow's poem in the style of the Swedish poem Isaiah Tengda. Lewis's epiphany of joy bathed his everyday world of experience with beauty and wonder. But for Lewis, the question was, what does this mean, if indeed it means anything at all? What way of seeing this experience might help him to make sense of it? How was he to interpret it, and what did it point to? While an atheist, Lewis dismissed such experiences as illusory. Yet he became increasingly dissatisfied with such simplistic, reductive explanations. His growing familiarity with what he termed the Christian mythology, and let us remember, Lewis uses that word myth in a technical sense, meaning a narrated worldview, led him to appreciate that these experiences could easily and naturally be accommodated within a Christian explanatory framework. So what, Lewis wondered, if God were an active, questing, personal agent, as Christianity indeed affirmed to be the case? If so, God could easily be understood as the source from which those arrows of joy had been shot at me ever since childhood, to quote, from surprise by joy. In the sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis develops this theme further by exploring the human quest for beauty. And Lewis argues this is really a search for the source 
of that beauty, which is mediated through the things of this world, but not contained within them. I quote, The books or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It wasn't in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. And Lewis realized that without a Christian way of seeing things, this longing remained, I quote, uncertain of its object. Its true goal remained to be identified and attained. Whereas Christianity, Lewis declares, gives us the intellectual framework that both interprets the experience and leads us to its true goal. And in his own way, Lewis reworks the point so famously made by T.S. Eliot in Dry Salvages. Let me read you the two lines I have in mind. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. And approach to the meaning restores the experience. In Mere Christianity, Lewis sets out this approach in a somewhat different way. While still appealing to the elusiveness of our experiences of joy. The experiences he had in mind are shared across the human spectrum. They are not specifically Christian. They are human experiences which Lewis believes are interpreted and seen in their proper light only from within the Christian tradition. And very often these experiences in wider cultural terms are framed in terms of a sense of something being there. For example, the great Russian novelist Dostoevsky spoke of a, quote, a nostalgic yearning bordering at times on unendurably poignant sorrow, which he experienced in the dreams of my heart and the reveries of my soul. But more interestingly, perhaps, here in the United Kingdom, Bertrand Russell, one of the most articulate and influential British atheist writers of the 20th century, put a similar thought into words. Listen to what he says. This is the kind of experience that Lewis wishes to engage, interpret, and transform. The center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a something far beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific God, vision, God, I don't find it, I don't think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. It is the actual spring of life within me. And Burton Russell's sense of something powerful, something elusive, something that we want to embrace and grasp, is the driver behind Lewis's argument. Now, Russell's daughter, Catherine Tate, realized that Russell was rather contemptuous of organized religion, um, but she took the view that her father's life was really an unacknowledged, perhaps disguised, search for God. Let me quote you from one of her letters. Somewhere at the back of my father's mind, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of the soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God, and he never found anything else to put in it. And she wrote that Russell was now haunted by, I quote, a ghost-like feeling of not belonging in this world. Now, my point is that these are the kinds of experience to which Lewis appeals, a sense of hovering on the brink of discovering something of immense significance linked with a sense of sorrow and frustration when what seemed to be so close tantalizingly disappears. Like smoke, it just can't be grasped. And Lewis put it like this. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. So what does this point to? What does it mean? In mere Christianity, Lewis concedes that some might suggest that this frustration arises from looking for its true object in the wrong place. 
or that some might say that since further searching will only result in repeated disappointment, there's simply no point in trying to find something better than the present world. But Lewis suggests that there is a third approach, a Christian approach, which recognizes that these earthly longings, I quote, are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage of our true homeland. Since this overwhelming desire cannot be fulfilled through anything in this world, this suggests to Lewis that its ultimate object must lie beyond this present world. And let me quote you again from Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now here, as throughout his apologetic writings, the starting point of Lewis's approach doesn't lie with the Bible or the Christian tradition, but with shared human experience and observation. How do we make sense of things? Lewis's genius as an apologist lay in his ability to show how a viewpoint which was derived from the Bible and the Christian tradition was able to offer a more satisfactory explanation of common human experiences than its rivals, especially, of course, the atheism he had once himself espoused. So Lewis's apologetic approach is to identify a common human observation or experience and then show how it fits in naturally and plausibly within the Christian way of looking at things. For Lewis, Christianity provides a big picture, an intellectually capacious and imaginatively satisfying way of seeing things. Now Lewis was always emphatic that nothing can be proved on the basis of observation or experience. Yet while such observations of nature or an experience prove nothing, they certainly suggest certain possibilities and even intimate what they might mean. Now that's what Lewis is getting at in an interesting passage in The, the Four Loves. A true philosophy, he writes, may sometimes validate an experience of nature. An experience of nature cannot validate a philosophy. Nature will not verify any theological or metaphysical proposition. She will, however, help to show what it means. Now, I think that's a very important point. I think Lewis echoes here G.K. Chesterton, who once remarked, I think, extremely clearly and perceptively, and I quote, the phenomenon does not prove religion, but religion explains the phenomenon. So Lewis's approach could be framed like this. Christianity holds that the natural order, including our own reasoning, is shaped by the God who created all things. As Augustine of Hippo and Pascal had argued before him, Lewis affirms that the absence of God causes us to experience longing, a yearning for God, which we misinterpret and misunderstand as a longing for something that is located within the finite and created order. And conversion is thus, if I could put it like this, partly about a semiotic transformation. When we realize that something we believe to be pointing to one thing, in, po- in fact, points to something rather different. We could set out Lewis's argument more formally like this. We experience desires that no experience in this world seems able to satisfy. Yet, Christianity tells us that we are made for another world, and when things are seen in this way, this sort of experience is exactly what we should expect. The appeal is not so much to cold logic as to intuition and imagination resting on an imaginative dynamic of discovery. Lewis invites his audience to see their experiences through a set 
of Christian spectacles. And notice how these bring what otherwise might seem to be fuzzy or blurred into sharp focus. For Lewis, the ability of the Christian faith to accommodate our experience so naturally and so easily is an indication of its truth. So as Lewis states this approach from desire, it's not really an argument. It's more about observing and affirming the fit between a theory and observation. It's like trying on a hat or a shirt for size. How well does it fit? How many of our observations of the world can it accommodate and how persuasively? Lewis's way of thinking also shows some similarity to a related approach within the natural sciences, now generally known as inference to the best explanation. And this approach recognizes that there are multiple explanations of observations and suggests how criteria might be identified to determine which of these explanations was to be considered the best. Now, the same approach we see in Lewis's argument from morality. This is sometimes portrayed in ridiculously simplistic terms, like, for example, experiencing a sense of moral obligation proves that there is a God. Lewis didn't say that, and he certainly didn't think that. As with the argument from desire, Lewis's argument is rather that the common human experience of a sense of moral obligation is easily and naturally accommodated within a Christian framework. So where does Lewis take us from there? How does he move from interpretation to transformation? For Lewis, our experiences and intuitions, for example, concerning morality and desire, are meant, I quote, to arouse our suspicions that there is indeed something which is directing the universe. And Lewis argues that our moral experience or experience of desire suggest there is a deeper order to things which we are able to understand and to grasp. For example, concerning the moral approach, he writes, we come to suspect that our moral experience suggests a real law which we did not invent and which we know we ought to obey. In much the same way as our experience of desire is best understood if that desire is an image or a copy or an echo of another place which is our true homeland. And as we track these suspicions and follow them through, we begin to realize that it has considerable imaginative and explanatory potential. What was initially a dawning suspicion becomes solidified as a growing conviction that it makes sense of what matters to us naturally and persuasively. So what can we learn from Lewis's approach to telling the truth? Perhaps I could mention two points in bringing this lecture to a close. First, Lewis helps us to see that apologetics need not take the form of deductive argument, but can be understood and presented as an invitation to step into the Christian way of seeing things and explore how things look when seen from this standpoint. In effect, try seeing things this way. If worldviews or meta-narratives can be compared to lenses, then which of them brings things into sharpest focus? And secondly, I think this is a very important point. We need to realize that Lewis's explicit appeal to reason involves an implicit reason to the imagination. And perhaps this helps us to understand why Lewis appeals to both modern and postmodern people. I think I need to say that I see no historical evidence whatsoever that compels me to argue that Lewis deliberately set out to appeal to both modern and postmodern people. The evidence suggests simply he saw things this way naturally and never formalized it as some kind of synthesis of these two very different modalities of thought. 
But Lewis gives us a synopticon, a viewpoint, a way of seeing things which transcends the great divide between modernity and postmodernity, affirming each of their strengths while subtly correcting their weaknesses. Yes, Lewis affirms the rationality of the universe, but he does so without plunging us into an imaginatively drab world of cold logic and dreary argumentation. Yes, Lewis affirms the power of images and narratives to captivate our imagination, but does so without giving up on the primacy of truth. As the churches face an increasingly complex cultural context in which they must preach and minister, it seems to me that Lewis offers us insights and approaches that are potentially enriching, and I venture to suggest might also be culturally plausible and intellectually persuasive. In the end, Lewis tells the truth by showing the truth. He offers us this intellectually capacious, imaginatively compelling vision of the Christian faith, perhaps best summed up in his lapidary statement at the end of his essay, Is Theology Poetry? And using a very powerful visual image, Lewis invites us to see God as both the ground of the rationality of the world and the one who enables us to grasp, to see that rationality. Here is the quotation I have in mind. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And it seems to me that that beautifully crafted sentence is a fitting memorial both to Lewis himself and his rich understanding of faith. I must end. And I do so by noting a parallel between Lewis and the Genevan reformer, John Calvin. Neither Lewis nor Calvin had any children, although both were stepfathers to children from their wives' earlier marriages. When Calvin was mocked by his critics for having no children, he offered an intriguing rebuttal. Anyone, he wrote, who read his books and came to share his way of thinking was his child. And when seen that way, Calvin turned out to have had rather a large family. I think the same is true of Lewis. Many of us find that our ways of thinking have come to be deeply shaped by Lewis. To put it another way, we share something of his intellectual DNA. Those of us gathered here today are Lewis's children meeting for a family celebration. Not one of us here today is a physical descendant of Lewis, but we are all linked to him through our imagination and our reason. And I think we all share in the delight of this family occasion, made possible both by the generosity and discernment of this great institution, Westminster Abbey, thank you, and also by the genius and talent of C.S. Lewis. May both institution and person flourish in the next 50 years. Thank you so much for listening. Now we just have uh, five minutes or so for any uh, questions from the floor. I'll just remind you again that questions for this evening should be written, but questions now uh, from the floor, just for four or five minutes, and we have two microphones going around, and I'll just point to a couple of people and then uh, hand over to Alistair. Thank you for your presentation. Um, simple question in modern London. How do we take Lewis's arguments and use it in our communication of the Christian gospel? Would you say there's some particular lessons 
here to be learned for preachers and for missioners? Well, I think the answer is yes. And let me just map out some things I think that Lewis does very, very well, which I think we can do as well. And maybe Lewis did these very well a generation ago, and we might need to do them slightly differently today. But I think his example is still very, very helpful. Number one, Lewis is extremely good at cultural translation. By that, I mean taking the ideas, the images of the Christian tradition and interpreting, explaining them, rephrasing them in terms that are able to connect up with our culture. And Lewis, I think, learned that the hard way when he gave these lectures at Royal Air Force bases during the Second World War. But I think what Lewis realized was that there was an increasing um, lack of understanding of Christian vocabulary in mainline culture, and that really the church and ordinary Christians had to do some legwork to be able to explain these things. I think that's part of it. He does those very well in mere Christianity. Secondly, I constantly emphasize Lewis shows, not simply tells. I think that is important because our culture does re respond very, very positively to narratives, to images, and put those together, and, and films. And I think that in many ways what Lewis does is give us stimulus to think. What stories might we tell to make this point? Lewis gives superb stories which help us grasp what the incarnation is about. He gives images of water lilies which help us grasp something of the doctrine of the Trinity. I think in many ways Lewis is saying to us, well, use these if they're helpful, but actually maybe you need to devise narratives and images that connect up with where we are today. So I think Lewis both does the thing well himself and we can use him, but there is a sense of transferred responsibility where in effect we have to work out how we would do this 50 years after Lewis's death. And I think that, that's, a, that's an enriching challenge, which I think will bring out the best in us, and I very much hope we'll rise to it. Thank you. For those of us who are from uh, church backgrounds that are low and unadorned, how do we help people overcome the traditional suspicion of the arts, and particularly of poets, who of course are all liars, according to Greek philosophy? Uh, how do we overcome that so that we might engage imagination more widely within our churches as well as within our work with those beyond the church? Well, I think that's a very good question. Um, and as always, there are two ways you can do this. You can do this by arguing for this in terms of good um, you know, scholarly arguments for this being a very appropriate way ahead. But actually, in many ways, the best argument might simply be pragmatic. Lewis shows us these approaches work. And I, I realize that that sounds a, you know, a dangerously simplistic argument, but there is a sense in which Lewis... Um, in effect, came to that conclusion by a very rich scholarly route. So I think actually one of the things I would say is that the great success of Lewis itself requires explanation. And one of the explanations for that success is that Lewis used language, used imagery, used stories so successfully and actually was able to connect up with a generation who didn't really, um, really get very much out of what Lewis called stained glass presentations of Christianity. And I think that, that one of the things that Lewis does is simply say to us, look, these approaches have a lot to offer. And Lewis himself in a, you know, did this, and I think invites us to think how we might do it even better. But I think somehow it really does need to be done. Lewis, in um, Surprised by Joy, quotes a line from Goethe, which he really found very, very moving. And he talked about, um, Goethe's line talks about um, gray theories and the golden tree of life. And the point that Lewis is making is that Christianity is all about a living reality that's incapable of being reduced to theories, even though theories can help us grasp something of it. And maybe poetry, maybe literature helps us to grasp the reality of that, that living God more than pure theories do. I think that Lewis has bequeathed a challenge to pure theory, which is something we do need to take very seriously. Thank you. Question over here, please. Thank you very much. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, you didn't refer to how the Holy Spirit inspired imagination in the intellect in Lewis's work. Could you comment on that? Yes, I'd be very glad to. Lewis himself doesn't actually talk about this 
hugely, although I would certainly say that is implicit in a lot of what he writes. But certainly, um, Lewis's image, for example, of arrows of joy clearly is implying it's not simply that um, God just leaves certain things statically in the world embedded there, that actually God is actively engaged in this. And his, his way of thinking about the Trinity certainly, in effect, suggests something like this, that, that God, in effect, is constantly challenging us, probing us, shooting at us, moving us, engaging us, not simply leaving us to discover things on our own, but rather prompting us, encouraging us to discover things. It's all about God helping us to discover what otherwise might lie beyond us, but once we've grasped it, we can see its intrinsic rationality. So Lewis wasn't a, a charismatic in any sense of the word. He wasn't really a theologian of the Holy Spirit. But he is someone who grasps that the Christian vision of God is not static like, uh, like, like William Paley's God, who simply uh, hangs around in heaven and watches us amusedly while we try to make sense of things. For Lewis, God is one who intervenes, who is engaged, who makes himself present. Lewis on incarnation is, I think, very, very strong. And you might also think of Lewis's own conversion narrative in Surprised by Joy, which is all about the relentless advance of God. That's not about Lewis discovering God. It's about God advancing on Lewis. And so I think Lewis really does find ways of trying to maintain that God is active and present, not simply some distant object of reflection. No, God is in the mix. And Lewis's analogies for Trinity, I think, do bring that out reasonably well. Thank you. Thank you. A couple more questions. In my research on social media, I found that the last quote you shared from Lewis, um, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, um, has turned out to be his most shared uh, and liked quote in social media. Can you tell me why you feel like that exact quote of all his quotes resonates so strongly 50 years after his death? I like that question very much. Um, looking at the history of Lewis' reception, this has not always been the case. Uh, and I, I have not done the detailed research necessary, but I, I actually sense it's in the last 10 or 20 years that, that quote really has, has emerged as being so significant. But I mean, I'm happy to be challenged on that, but that's my perception. Why do I like it so much? Well, first of all, I think it's a very well-crafted sentence. I mean, most of Lewis's sentences are quite good, but that one, I think, has a particular, you know, you probably know this, but when Lewis was writing his book on Milton, one of the things he emphasized was you need to hear Milton read aloud. To appreciate a poet, you don't just read, you have him read aloud. And I, I think Lewis read that aloud, and, and I think actually it works quite well when it is read aloud. But it's the conceptual basis that I think is just so splendid. If I were a philosopher, I would say God is both evidenced and evidencing. And you would probably say, well, that may be true, but I haven't understood you, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think I might want to argue with you anyway. But I mean, Lewis's sentence actually is, is saying that. It's saying look, that the, the, the belief in God is a grounded, warranted belief, and it's also a belief which has explanatory capacity. Uh, and Lewis has managed to say something which I think is actually quite philosophically significant, but he's done it in a rather memorable way that resides in your imagination. And as you replay that quote in your mind, you can actually unpack the philosophical baggage as you do so. So I, I think it's a, it is a good illustration of Lewis's distinctive approach. Memorable phrases and images stay with you, and you replay them, you, 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 know, you, you, you pick at them, and, and you get more out of them as you do so. Thank you. Uh, it might just be worth saying that uh, at the insistence of my colleague, uh, Canon Vernon White, we are including that text on the memorial stone that will be unveiled tomorrow. And very so, appropriate too. Uh, very appropriate. Another question, just here please. I was wondering, do you know of any Christian writers today who are integrating reason and imagination like Lewis did? Basically, are there any successors to Lewis today that you know of? Well, I, I think um, we could spend quite a long time on this. And indeed, I think our, our next lecture will probably persuade you admirably that there are people who are doing precisely this today. But I think Lewis does it particularly well. And I, I think in many ways, one of, the things that, one of the reasons why Lewis is rightly so affirmed is that actually he, he's both a role model and inspiration. He's saying this needs to be done. He does it in his own way. And actually, he gives us a resource to take away and do ourselves. So I personally would 
take the view that Lewis um, has made his point very well, that many have learned from it, and are, the real question, I think, for many of them is um, how best to do this. Not that it should be done, that, that's, that's agreed, it's how to try and do this. And I think that, um, you know, I, I myself feel very strongly that we need books that will come to perhaps even displace the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia, because they have taken what Lewis and Tolkien did a generation ago and actually maybe even done it better, but certainly done it in such a way that connects up with where we are today. So I think Lewis has bequeathed us not simply his own works, but a method, and the method can be taken and used still further. Thank you. Well, Big Ben has just chimed three o'clock, which is our signal to draw stumps for this particular part. Uh, Alistair, I just want to say to you that in telling us the truth about truth through rational argument, you have been an exemplar of C.S. Lewis because you've not only told us it, you've shown us it. And in the words that you gave us at the early part of the lecture, uh, the children among us have been able to paddle at the edges, and those of the elephants have been able to swim and dive right in. That has been a terrific start, and we'd like to thank you for your contribution. I must come here more often. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Alistair McGrath. Next week, poet, priest and author Malcolm Geit speaks on telling the truth through imaginative fiction in the second lecture from the 2013 C.S. Lewis Symposium at Westminster Abbey. Thanks again to the Christian Evidence Society for permission to broadcast this mini-series on the podcast. Do check the show notes to watch the video and to find out all things C.S. Lewis, go to our show page, cslewispodcast.com. See you next time.